Welcome to Beer Me. I am your host, Sarah Jane. Every episode, I will have a guest on the show to discuss different parts of the beer world, from brewers, importers, educators. This will allow us to examine the dynamic world of beer through different lenses. Whether you're new to beer or a seasoned professional, we will have something for you. So I'm very excited to welcome to the show Liz Garibay. She is a historian that specializes in history and culture of alcohol, but she's also the founder of the Chicago Bruseum. This is America's first museum dedicated to beer. Recently, she was on a panel during the Smithsonian's last call, hosted by Teresa McCullough, curator of the American Brewing History Initiative at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. So I'm over the moon excited for this conversation. Liz, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us on the show. Oh man, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So you have a really cool background where you have focused so much of your time and energy on the history and culture of, of beverage, but you've you also come from a, a really great museum background. You've interned and worked at the Field Museum and in Chicago. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and kind of how you got to where you are now? Yeah, I had always been interested in history, but mostly ancient history. And I think that really kind of was rooted in me because my parents um, are from Mexico City and immigrated to the United States in 1968. But every year they made it a point that our vacation, right, we, we weren't going to the Grand Canyon. We weren't going to Niagara Falls. We weren't going to Florida for spring break. Once a year, they would take us back to Mexico City to meet family, say hello to family, and sort of keep in touch with those roots, which were so important. So, you know, Mexico City is a place that you're surrounded by a lot of um, ancient history and ruins and I was sort of fascinated by these things, and I was fortunate enough to get an internship at the Field Museum uh, when I was 15 years old, very accidental. Uh, I was just at the right place at the right time and encouraged by the then chair of the Department of Anthropology to do some work, and I did, and I loved it, even though much of it was very mundane, <laughs> um, doing a lot of you know internal work that you would expect a 15-year-old to do. And I just kept at it. And so every Christmas break and summer break through high school and also through college, I kept that internship. And the, the great thing of, of that whole uh, situation was when I graduated from college with a degree in anthropology, I actually got a job. They gave me a job at the Field Museum. So all those years of free labor, labor paid off. Yeah. Then, you know, my mentors there, um, you know, when, when you're on this archaeology track, it's also an academic track. So they really sort of pushed me to go get a, a master's degree. And I went to the West Coast to do that and then came back home and worked in at the Field Museum again and then at the Museum of Science and Industry. And those mentors were, well, you now get need to get a Ph.D., so they pushed me to do that. So I did. I went to do that on the East Coast. And partially through my education, I just realized something pretty significant. And that was that I hated academia. Mm. Um, my yeah. heart was not in that academic world. I didn't, you know, like to be forced to follow the specific routes. Um, I didn't really want to be forced to publish things I really wasn't excited about. Um, what I realized, what I, I really loved about all those years was the research. Talking about some of that information to people who might not be interested 
in maybe going to school, but interested in the topic, right? So if you think about the academic world, it's certainly very specific about who's around you and who's there. People who have the ability and the resources to be there. And you're talking to people who are already invested. Yeah. Um, whereas if you look at museum education, it's people who might be interested in the topic, but don't want to get too knee deep into it, but certainly can learn from it. So I made a switch to really just focus on what I loved, and that was the museum world and, and public history and public education. And while I was going to graduate school, the other thing I realized was that I really loved hanging out in bars by myself. I loved the spaces. I, I loved to study in them. And what ended up happening is when you spend that much time in bars, you become a regular and you're not, not going to the bar alone anymore. So you're hanging out with, you know, people who had been drinking at the bar for 30, 40, 50 years. And I realized that a lot of the things they were telling me were valuable oral histories. So I started writing them down and interviewing a few other people and then also doing my own research at different places and started collecting the history of, of specific taverns and realized soon that when you connect the dots to other taverns in the area, you start getting the history of a neighborhood and then you start getting the history of a city through the lens of those taverns. So I loved it so much, uh, just meeting people, speaking with people and, and doing a different kind of research that really didn't exist back in the in the late 90s, early 2000s. So I made a shift and, you know, you go down one rabbit hole and then here you are 25 years later doing all kinds of things. <laughs> <laughs> all things beverage. It's interesting. I've dipped my toe in academia and I always get that feeling like I never know what to do with my hands, you know, like... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Right. Or, or it's, you know, you just, uh, you know, you haven't found your penguins yet, you know, kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. I do remember, you know, a very favorite bar I had during grad school, too. It was far more effective than a coffee shop, at least. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. You start to make wonderful discoveries once, you know, after a couple of beers. Yeah. And you know what? I would maintain that, you know, thesis writing and, and stuff like that is better when you've got a little buzz going. You know, I feel like you know, inhibitions are a little loosened and you just kind of, you know, better writer in some way. Very, very Hemingway moment here. Yeah. One of, <laughs> one of my professors always told me to uh, write while drunk and edit while sober. Yeah. No. So I stick to that. Excellent advice. <laughs> yeah. So you founded you founded a whole museum in Chicago. This is America's first museum dedicated to beer, the Bruseum. And something that I really want to talk a lot about in the in the next little chunk here is that you all have a the fourth beer culture summit coming up on November 9th through the 12th. And this is an event that you have hosted. And after 2020, this has kind of shifted to a hybrid event. But as I was kind of going through all the different speakers and panelists and events that are that are to be had, it's a, a completely fascinating event. So can you explain kind of what the event's about and kind of how it came to be? So the idea for the Beer Culture Summit came about a little bit in regard to what we were talking about before. When, when you're in, in academia, you are encouraged to go to these academic conferences around whatever the topic is. And when you're a museum professional, it's the same thing. You're asked to go to different kinds of museum conferences. And the one thing that I took away from from those spaces was that 
it's really inaccessible to sort of younger people just getting into those fields. The price tags are really hefty, right? Um, usually costs like 500 plus dollars to, to go to a conference. And then, you know, let alone getting there and finding a hotel and feeding yourself. So that was always sort of a curious, I don't know, situation for me. And the other thing is, is that, you know, people pay this money to go every year and you're actually talking to the same people every year. <laughs> and, you know, they're valuable for networking and for keeping in touch with colleagues. But a part of me just thought a lot of the same information was continuously shared and just regurgitated in a different way, you know, repackaged in different ways. So, and, you know, and going to beer fest, well, we love beer fest because, you know, they're fun and they're social and you get to try new beers. There's really not too much beyond that unless you're going to technical beer conference, but that also means then you're in the industry, right? So another layer of sort of another kind of obstacle. So I decided that it might be really cool to marry all of these conferences. And basically you take things that happen in an academic conference and a museum conference and a beer fest, and you mash them all up together. And hopefully what you create is a space that is welcoming to anyone and everyone interested in beer, whether you're just a consumer or someone who is actually um, working in the industry, but also the array of content needed to be just really diverse and not just the content, but the people at the table talking about it. So that's really what, how the Beer Culture Summit came to be. And, you know, that, that price point also was key. So if you actually look at our daytime sessions, which are all digital and it's literally from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. every day, you get all those sessions for just 25 bucks. So the goal is that, you know, you should be able to attend because you want to and, and should not have any sort of a, a barrier, especially a financial one. No, I noticed that when I was going through the website, because yeah, I was looking at all of these different events that you have scheduled, all of these different speakers covering so many different topics. And then when I could see that, you know, I could tune in hybrid for $25 a day, I was so surprised and, and pleasantly so. You know, I mean, one of the topics uh, are fermented lives, how fermented foods have shaped cultures and communities. You have historians. Another one is how beer media has evolved, where it's going and how breweries can use it. I mean, there are so many different topics in culture and history, and there's definitely some incredibly nerdy <laughs> things in here that I am just so excited about. But you've got, I mean, uh, you have a whole panel, a seat at the table, Black Women Insider. Like, I can't tell you how many times I've scrolled through conferences and it's just like panel after panel of just white guys. And this is just, yeah, I'm, I'm, I was in heaven just scrolling through all Thanks. of these. Thanks. I, I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's really the goal, you know, is to just have anybody who is in any way, shape or form a part of beer, you know, which to me is everyone, anyone who likes beer is a part of beer. Um, and that really was a goal. And, you know, when I, when I kind of started thinking about this, um, gosh, a little over four years ago, it's funny, you know, just having done the panel at the Smithsonian with Teresa, she was the first person I talked to about this idea, you know, and I knew that, you know, Teresa is such a great person and is doing such incredible work at the National Museum of American History. And, um, I was in town for, uh, for a, a pop culture conference and I was presenting there about the Bruseum and we were having coffee and I kind of just shared the idea of here's what I would like to do. And 
she was incredibly supportive to the point where she was like, you know, this is some of the work that we try to do too, but you're so focused on it. I would love to partner with this on you. And, you know, the very first summit was presented in, in collaboration with her and the National Museum of American History. So that that was really significant because, you know, obviously if sort of this such important institution is backing um, something that you're doing, uh, it really kind of gives it legs, it gives mm-hmm. it credibility. And so with, with her help, we did the first one. And of course, that was all in person and here in Chicago. And then um, the pandemic, we shifted to all digital. And last year, we did a hybrid. And this year's a hybrid. So you have three full days of all day sessions, like I said, from 10am to 5pm, every hour, pretty much on the hour a new session starts and you can chime in um, via the internet. Uh, and then at night we have one in-person event here in Chicago. And that that in-person was significant for a couple of reasons. One, you know, people still want to be able to gather if possible. Um, and two, uh, you know, being having Chicago as our home base, um, it was important for us to do something here as part of it, special for, for the Chicago audience too. And anyone who wants to, you know, come hang out and visit during the summit, for sure. <laughs> And I mean, Chicago, talk about a rich alcohol history, um, not only just in beer. And you you have, you know, focused a lot of your research on kind of the pub history and the, and the culture in Chicago. I kind of want to do a little blurb here about, you know, if somebody's visiting Chicago, what are what are some places they, they need to see and why as far as like beer history yeah, goes? No, I know, I know I mean, I'm putting on the spot so, here. There's but. so much, um, you know, I... Uh, yeah, I mean, you, know, you just go down to the Chicago River and you're surrounded by beer history in a way. Um, that river was such an important artery mm-hmm. uh, for the growth of the city. It really is the reason, you know, our, our freshwater lake and our river were the reason that, you know, Chicago is here, both not only for beer, but in the movement of people and goods. And our very first taverns were around that river. You know, the some of the very first breweries were close to that river and that lake. You know, the fresh water really gave us a one-up uh, on the beer industry. And, and of course, you know, 19th century United States, and especially a big city like Chicago, uh, is such an immigrant story. And the immigrants who came here, many of them, you know, the Germans were making beer, but then you needed people to serve it. So you had so many different ethnic populations opening uh, saloons and, and, you know, providing a thirst-free atmosphere for a growing city and its people. So there are some great historic saloons that are, are left. You know, unfortunately, we don't have too many that have been around since the 19th century. A big part of that is obviously prohibition and not just the fact that prohibition happened, but the fact that our liquor licenses had to restart, right? So there's always a question about what's the oldest bar in town. And it's a really difficult you know, question to answer because of those liquor licenses. But we still have a lot of great historic bars that have been around since at least, you know, the the just after the post-prohibition era. And we can sort of um, understand that uh, based on some records that we find that there had always been a saloon at that location. So we know that it's they have long histories um, connected to, to the tavern industry. I mean, one of my favorite places is a place called Twin Anchors, uh, which is in a neighborhood called Old Town. And it's been around since the early 30s. And uh, one of those places that is, uh, we can say, is a a pretty well-documented speakeasy from the 20s. You know, one of the things about a place like Chicago is that a lot of bar owners will tell you that their bars used to be speakeasies. Right. Illegal, illegal watering holes. And I think that there's this really weird thing that we have, this weird relationship we have with prohibition is that we all kind of want to romanticize it. 
right? We all want to think about this era as like the wild, wild west when it came to drinking and, and we have this fascination with crime and just the legal, illegal nonsense. And so it, it's a it's a slippery slope and it's a tough relationship to navigate through. But there are some saloons that, that have some good documentation and Twin Acres is one of them. And it's just a great local bar. It's a great local corner bar, um, very much full of folks who grew up in the neighborhood or who just, you know, are Chicagoans through and through. And it's got some great food and there's stories of Frank Sinatra visiting and his sort of fascination with the bar. So it's got a lot of folklore. Second City, the Comedy Center is nearby. So a lot of those folks used to eat and drink there. So it's just very layered in its relevance to history and pop culture. So it's definitely one of my favorites. And then um, actually not too far from there is probably the bar I frequent the most called the Old Town Ale House, which is just uh, kind of, I guess some people call it a dive. I just call it a neighborhood bar. It's just very much the feeling of kind of like walking back into like early 1960s Chicago. Uh, It's very, very no frills, full of unique pieces of art and just kind of a special place. I love that. And do you have like a go-to like starting beverage that you're Ooh, kind of question. in the mood for? Um, it depends. It depends on, on what's happening, what my day's been like, where I'm going with it, <laughs> my goals. While I do work a lot in beer, um, I am a big fan of a dirty martini, gin martini. So I'll either start with that or, um, you know, Negronis. Uh, I have a special relationship with Negronis as well. Uh, and then usually I just coast into beer or a glass of wine or something. Nice. Very strong, strong, <laughs> strong life choices you're making there. Um, (laughs) I love it. And you had mentioned that, you know, our, our story, you know, as, as in America and our brewing story is so dictated by the history of immigration. And as our brewing history continues to evolve, I think that we are still seeing the really beautiful impact that immigration is having on our a beer experience right now. And the panel that you were just on at the American History Museum focuses on uh, Latinos in, in craft beer and all the contributions that they are making. Are you seeing that also coming through in Chicago as well, where you're seeing different viewpoints within beer start to make a name for themselves within that brewing community so that, you know, it's not just so... Yeah, you know, I think not just in Chicago, but certainly around the country, you know, one thing that has been really refreshing is seeing how a lot of people related, you know, to specific ethnic groups are really celebrating their culture and heritage through these new breweries. I think, you know, one of the one of the things that myself and the panel talked about a number of times and, and also in like prepping for the panel was sort of this idea of almost being afraid to celebrate your heritage, but not making it relatable to people who might not know what it is. And so it's an interesting Mm. barrier. It's an interesting situation and struggle to sort of be in. And I think in the end, what happens is, you know, you see these different communities who are really proud of who they are and really in the end are putting their stuff out there. And then people who are not part of those communities are completely accepting it, right? And, 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 and having open arms about it. So, you know, certainly with this, this panel, we t- discussed some of that with um, Latino breweries in the, in the nation. Last year's Beer Culture Summit, there was a panel about Southeast Asian Americans and breweries in the nation. And I was really stunned to learn that that was the first time ever at any beer anything that 
a group of Southeast Asian brewery owners were talking about beer together, right? And I'm like, how how is this happening? Really? So just just the the <laughs> the awakening of the industry and really the consumers kind of wanting something a little bit different. One of the sessions I'm really excited about for this year's Beer Culture Summit is with Alice Jun of um, Hanamakoli in Brooklyn, New York, right? And she's going to talk about mm-hmm. this Korean rice wine and this tap room that she's created. And I think there's so much excitement around this type of beverage because it's new and people, you know, it's it's new, but it's not, right? It's it's ancient and it, it's new to, to American consumers. And I think that that is something that is not only exciting to our palates, but also it's exciting from just a historic and cultural place. I think I think sometimes we don't give consumers enough credit for how how willing they are to accept new things and new yeah. flavors. You know, I think I think sometimes people are really pleasantly surprised with you know how popular something can be and and how quickly it can be. Adopted our our just our last show. Uh, I got to speak with Carmen Favela, the founder, owner, CEO of uh, Munharis Brew House in San Diego, um, and she had talked about how there are a lot of nostalgic flavors that she is using in the beer, and just how like how quickly people have gotten behind. They have a michelada that they do, and you know, it's a beer cocktail, and just how quickly people got behind that concept and how just almost instantly it became one of their most popular beverages, which I mean, doesn't surprise me because they're delicious, but you know. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) anything, no matter if you're dealing with beer, there's always going to be a a moment of having to educate people on just, you know, minor things just to be able to help them better understand what it exactly is they're, they're working with. And I think the minute you're able to do that and do it successfully, I think it's a whole new world, you know, with, with not just for the, for the business owner, but for the consumer for sure. Well, Liz, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us here on Beer Me today. Just a reminder for listeners, you know, could you just walk them through the best way yeah. to register for the yeah, Beer Culture Summit? Yeah, just go to our uh, website, chicagobrewsium.org, and you'll see a splash page. It will take you right to the summit, and you can sign up right there on the summit page. Uh, we do all of the digital sessions via zoom and you get a special link. Uh, it's pretty easy. Yeah. I would highly recommend enjoying it at your favorite pub <laughs> yeah. or brew house. Um, <laughs> just to get in the spirit. And if you are heading out to Chicago, it is an amazing city, uh, with really, really rich history. And I, I second the charm of oh, old town yeah. ale house. So I would also check that out as well. So Liz, thank you so hey, much. Thank I you guys. I really it. appreciate you guys, um, having me on the show. Always happy to chat. Uh, well, this has been another episode of Beer Me Radio. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, please feel free to reach out at Beer Me Radio or at Beer Me Radio at gmail.com. We are available anywhere you get your podcast. Please like, subscribe, give all the stars. We love that. And we will catch you next time. Cheers. Cheers.